Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hi everyone and welcome to this event um, called Trauma Inequality and Healing from COVID-19. Uh, my name is Deborah James, I'm a Professor of Anthropology here at LSE and it's my great pleasure to be here to sort of introduce this event and to introduce the speakers. Um, but those of you who have only just arrived will perhaps not know that this is part of the LSE Festival, how do we get to a post-COVID world, and it's going on from Monday the 13th to today, basically. Um, it's part of a whole year of activities exploring the practical steps that we could be taking to shape a better world. So we're going to have the film first, and then we're going to have a panel discussion featuring these people here, and I'm going to briefly introduce them, although you might have seen all about them on the um, internet. But um, our speakers in, are as follows. So Suad Dwali is a doctoral student of counseling psychology, a psychotherapist, researcher, community leader, consultant, director of Master in Wellbeing, and advocates of mental health and women well-being. Nice to have you here. Um, James Ratti is a self-shooting producer director based in London. He's worked across op docs, I don't even know what those are, and documentaries, as well as short fiction and podcasts. He currently produces explainer films for Bloomberg, as well as working as an independent freelancer. Between 2015 and 2022, he made short documentaries about research at LSE, and was a producer on the award-winning podcast LSE IQ. Nikita Simpson, who's one of my colleagues in the department, is a postdoctoral research officer in the Department of Anthropology at LSE, where she leads the COVID and care research group, and she's got many more qualifications, but I won't rattle them off right now. Um, and Joanna, I seem to have left, oh, there we go. Joanna Lewis is an um, associate professor in the Department of International History here at the LSE, and her latest book, which is why she's been invited really, is Women of the Somali Diaspora, Refugees, Rebuilding and Resistance, very much on topic for today's um, topic. So there we go, that's, that's the, the lineup. And we look forward to the event. So the first thing that's going to happen is the screening of the film. Um, could I just remind you all, please, to turn off your telephones. Um, some events are recorded, and it's hoped that the podcast will be made available online. Um, yes, and basically there's a Twitter hashtag as well, so if you want to tweet, please go ahead and do so. It's hashtag LSE Festival. Right, there we go. Most of the people in the society, they experience war and hardship for every level, economic-wise, education-wise as well. But don't get lucky that we took some fresh back for BC for the trauma of the war. And I remember when old lady said to me, I survived two to three war and being killed, my husband killed from front of me, but this is the hardest one. And I said, uh, why? She said, I'm getting mad, I'm getting crazy. That's what she used, I'm getting mad because I feel alone, it's nowhere I go, it's just my walls I'm talking to. We are called center, connected to each other. Somebody calling me saying, this is my neighbor, she outside and her husband beating her up, what I do. 
Somebody's saying, I'm breaking down mentally. I don't know what to do. Somebody's telling me, I said, and I'm becoming this call center for the breaking down in society. It was one of the most harrowing and uh, moving uh, interviews that I did during that first period of research. When we came up on the train, from Birmingham, we actually didn't know what was in store for us at all. We got a cab from the station and we arrived um, at the uh, youth centre that Aisha runs and Swad had um, organised a range of incredible women to speak with us. And we saw Swad's Birmingham, you know. So Aisha runs the uh, youth centre um, and we also met Fatima who's a volunteer there who runs one of the coffee mornings um, and we also met Faiza who runs a community radio show. And there is, there is this woman what makes me really love what I do to see them and just they doing amazing. We are connecting in this link and this together, all of us. So the way that people have dealt with this dislocation and this trauma is basically to call on people like Aisha, who then call on people like you, who then call on people like Pfizer. Exactly. By looking back now, I thought we did so many things. At that moment, we didn't realize the amount of things that we're doing. Okay, mind, I'm a mom of three, I have my own kids, and I have my own life, but my kids have to cope for me to go out of the house six in the morning and come back eight o'clock at night. They have to cope with that, and they understand why I'm out. Because if they didn't, um, I didn't get that support, I won't be able to do what I did and support those people. Uh, Aisha, she's, yeah, she just calls me up and says, yeah, Fatima, are you okay? Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. I've got some food here. Do you want to come and pick it up? <laughs> I've got a box, loads of foods, and the kids were so happy. They're like, oh my God. They remembered us, you know? The support from the government, the NHS, for our community was very limited, very, very limited. It was up to us how we can help our people to pass the messages that the government was giving out. So it was, that's where I come in, where I invite people who are like doctors, nurses, community leaders, a variety of people who has the knowledge to support the community and tell them, look, this is the new rule. You need to put face mask. Oh, and why? So people call in. I have asthma, what should I do? Uh, you know, I'm struggling that way, what should I do? You know, just information for the community mainly. I am the breadwinner of the family, so I have to go to work and make sure everybody else is okay. So that's been really emotional, that's been hard. I've been just driving one time and I just start crying. I don't know where I'm doing it now again. But yeah, it's been really hard. I don't think I can rest now. I feel like I have a huge responsibility on my shoulder. And I constantly think of how to be able to release 
a pain from someone or uh, release a struggle from someone. And for me, I don't think I can rest any time. You can see that people have been affected mm. by the way they look at you, the way they talk. Well, I'm, not, I'm a volunteer here in the Dream Chases once a week uh, for uh, the coffee morning for the moms. And the amount of things they have, they talk about. Like this Wednesday, let's just take an example. There's a lady crying, coming to the coffee morning, and she just started crying whilst we were just having a chat about the NHS. And you can see people are having breakdowns. What Austerity did was strip out funding from the local level of government in the UK. Um, and the result were relationships and spaces that had folded or collapsed um, because they just weren't able to go on in that kind of um, environment of starvation. We felt this sense of abandonment, you know, that, that they couldn't rely on the state, that the health service wasn't for them. And so that meant they had to rely on each other. They had to turn inwards. And what was really um, horrible was that often the mechanisms by which those communities survived, you know, turning inwards on each other, were then further stigmatized um, as sources of transmission. So we see this kind of dynamic of further isolation and further kind of stigmatization um, exacerbating existing forms of systemic racism. There is a systematic discrimination my community really face every day, in every aspect of life. You know, I call my GP and ask I need a support. The answer at the end of the other call is go online and fill up a form. And they don't even know whether I have the access um, if I have access to the internet, no question asked. The housing, Birmingham City Council, is, is really bad when it comes to our community. My people are suffering. No one is taking our voice to the local government. No one's doing that. We don't have councillors. Our community leaders are trying their best to put our problems out there, but no one's listening to us at all. Crime is going high. Um but everywhere is closed. Is it, is it oppressing these kids to be at home and to not do anything and expect them to do well in life? So what can we do differently? That's the question. I think the government has put on a lot of blame on us so much that we are, at the end of the day, taxpayers and we haven't got anything back. We haven't, they haven't done anything for us. They've, close down all the most important places. That's something that I wish that would change, that they give more funding to the people that actually, the organizations that actually are helping people. I don't have my immediate family here. I have people who are in my family. And I remember the ambulancing coming in, my daughter crying, worrying about me. That, that is scary. That moment is really scary. I was giving up a lot of time, but they were there for me too. And I was in a hospital, I was not able to talk. But they stayed in the line and saying, okay, we're telling you stories and you better not die.
I think that it's really important that we move out of this moment um, uh, and into a moment of reflection uh, and thinking about what this decade of austerity has done to our local social infrastructures and what uh, uh, injection of funds and support um, can do to a centre like Aisha's centre, to a small psychotherapy business like uh, Swad's for communities. I think I think there's a moment of hope here, um, but it takes investment in the communities that um, have uh, gotten us through. in a while but we're going to kick off by having a little conversation going here within the panel um, so I wondered if I happen to have had the privilege of being part of this group the LSE care and COVID group which suddenly when the COVID lockdown started we had all these people who couldn't do going out and do their research so we sort of started doing this online investigation but I wondered whether um, Nikita could maybe give us a little bit of the background to how that group came into being and then how particularly you managed to make contact with this amazing group of, of women. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, uh, as, as you mentioned, Deborah, um, uh, during the very first moments of the pandemic um, in Easter, around Easter, March, late March 2020, um, there was a real kind of a spike in excess mortality that uh, the government really didn't know how to deal with. And at that point, um, Laura Bear, who leads our group, was um, in touch with some uh, people within the cabinet office, and they realised that the problem was a deeply anthropological problem, um, a problem uh, uh, about how to deal with um, bad deaths or deaths that were occurring uh, in an untimely way where people couldn't be buried properly, where um, people couldn't say goodbye to loved ones, um, in a way that preserved dignity and didn't, you know, cause a kind of social crisis. And so, you know, so many people, and almost 20 of colleagues in the department kind of came together to conduct interviews over a very short period of time, about uh, 10 days, uh, which then I wrote up very quickly into a report that went into the UK Cabinet Office and shaped the policy around excess deaths, so uh, encouraging communities to... Um, uh, encouraging local authorities to deal with death in ways that um, were kind of condoned or uh, through process of consultation with community leaders and um, uh, faith leaders and things. So that was a kind of a first moment to start off this conversation with because it really showed um, the value of anthropological research um, that could be fed very quickly into the pandemic response. And so from that very first instance, um, we formed a, a kind of ongoing group that fluctuated in size. It was multi-generational. Um, people came in and out at different points, activating their own personal and research contacts across the UK. And we mainly studied the impact of COVID-19 policies on different forms of inequality across the UK. And so one of the people I spoke to in the very first uh, lockdown was Suad, and I knew that there was a lot of um, 
uh, excess death um, as a different equal term. There was a lot of people dying in the Somali community um, as a result of uh, lots of different um, reasons. Um, and I wanted to speak to somebody from the Somali community. And so I found Sad's um, Instagram. Sad runs an incredible Instagram platform called Halo Talk, which is about um, mental health in the Somali community. And so I met, I DM'd her on Instagram, and we ended up speaking. And we kind of, we spoke then, and we kind of, you know, I, I was uh, conducted this research over almost a period of two years. And so Sad and I began to speak more regularly, and we actually became very good friends. And, um, and uh, yeah, maybe, maybe I can let you take it on from here. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, Give us your uh, Thank you, Brisa. I don't know why. It's always emotional. Uh, emotional to watch this and emotional. Go back to that moment. And it's emotion to, to keep my English right. <laughs> my daughter, she was thinking my English is broke. And it was, I think the first speak, and you talked to me when I was vulnerable, emotional, overbent. I was so everywhere. I was everywhere. Like I was, I was emotional. Really, this, the whole, I'm still like, like just watching this moment, like it, it takes. Physically, I can feel it in my gut. And the reason was, when we were talking about it, is I'm seeing a lot that I'm getting called nonstop. My phone is, that is why you call someone to call, because my phone, if you see my phone, it was like 200 calls a day. It was crazy amount. And that day, and I'm dealing with my own grieving too, but I don't know what to do. I'm asking, get help with the community access and help. Actually, I write to report to mental health. And, Say, can we develop workshop to these people or guide them access and anything? And I just talked to her one hour. I felt like he was just, I just for everything I know, I say, I'm angry. I don't know what to do. What is it? And I think he, you met me in my, like I was in dark place. Sometimes when we go to dark place, we go because we're going to personal. But this was not personal. It was mess. It was mess. Like, I, I don't know what to do. And I'm, I'm, I think when we talk about powerless, I was feeling was powerless. Like the good things. my job, I'm therapist. I'm, I'm I'm lucky to have supervisor. I know I can have self awareness, emotional understanding, but it's beyond my emotion. I'm somebody who experienced war, my son of trauma. I didn't know I was tricked too with trauma. I, I was holding. I was telling you, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Listen, we need to do this. We need to tell this story because people are overwhelmed and we need to get justice for this story. And we don't want this repeating. And, and we was like, I, I think the second time we talked was I just come out of the hospital mm. and I was crying. I said to her, no, this is no more. I don't want you to do a boring academy paper where only <laughs> citizen, only you study, you know, and you're doing assignment. I want people to see the picture and hear the story. And we need to do that. And she said, oh, exactly, that's what I was thinking. And I said, okay, how we cut you this story? And that is how we start. And we, I think our friendship, she was she was there for me too. It just what made this really so special it was there was the story in telling and you living in the story itself. And that what making it sometimes we do research because we the little ego, I want to be researching. <laughs> that is this can be. Well, I think this is what's reliving that moment. Uh, yeah, that is how the story was.
Yeah, so it sort of makes me think of my own experience in, as part of this group as well, because everyone felt very disempowered. <clears throat> in a way, none of us really knew what to do, but somehow getting together on these Zoom calls, yeah. kind of like, and finding out, oh, I've been talking to so-and-so, and somebody else has been talking to somebody else, and then you realize that many of these experiences are shared, and that's what kind of made it into a bit more of a group experience, and I suppose that, in a way, gave, gave a lot of people some hope um, going forward. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so maybe we could hear a little bit about how the whole film thing came about and why it was a film that you decided to, to make. Yeah, so, um, I was a filmmaker here at LSE working on various research projects. Um, and mid-pandemic, I think I got a message from Nikita asking to be involved. And I went along to one of these Zoom conversations, not just with you, but with other people you've been working with as well. Um, and it all felt... It was a really interesting conversation, but as all Zoom calls are, there's a level of detachment there. Um, and it quickly became apparent that Sue was very passionate about making a film. Um, as you just said, to kind of get away from having something written down and perhaps maybe to create a more kind of direct record of experience in that you get to see not just the people and hear their words, but also kind of experience their surroundings as well. Um, and initially I wasn't sure if that was possible because we were going in and out of lockdowns and there was initially an idea for maybe for you guys to go and record things on your phone and then send it back to me and then I would edit. Um, but luckily we did have the opportunity to go and actually spend time with you. Um, and we decided to adopt what's called kind of like a participatory filmmaking approach in which as a filmmaker, you give over a lot of the power that you have <laughs> going in, which is usually the way you want it, because you want to be able to um, control the narrative, um, you know, even from a technical perspective, if you want to record an interview, you ideally you want to do it in a studio or in a quiet space, um, and then you have kind of idea of what, what the story's going to be. Um, but I thought in this case it would not be appropriate. You were very, very keen um, to set up interviews, to participate, and engage in the editing process. And so, as you can see from the film there, there are times I'm like, oh, the background noise is so noisy, why didn't we go somewhere quieter? But then I was thinking, no, it really works to go to like your, one of the community hubs where we had, had that delicious meal, several delicious yes. meals, and just to kind of hear people in the background, and you get a real sense of of people, people themselves, but also the communities, and at that stage, the kind of communities coming out of lockdown. Um, and so we kind of took it from there. And it wasn't just at the start you were involved and people were involved, they were involved throughout the process as well. So often, in the case of participatory filmmaking, um, the participants are very involved at the beginning, but then editors take it away and they get to construct the story that they think they've heard. Um, and again, we wanted to make sure that you were involved throughout the process, so it very much was your story. Great, thank you. Yeah, so I wonder, could I turn to you, Joanna, and ask you a little bit about this thing that we heard about in the film, which is that sense of, of sort of not being supported, these women from the Somali community, so sort of invisible, not in view of the authorities, not in view of the NHS. What's the sort of background story there? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming this is something you've looked into. Well, thank you for that, and also congratulations on that. It's very, very moving. And yes, I'm one of those boring academics that writes <laughs> papers um, about these sorts, sorts of things. So thank you for helping me here. 
Yes, um, the book that um, I wrote uh, focusing on communities, Somali communities in London was one that showed the long-term historical background to um, surviving in London after the Civil War uh, and the subtitle is, you know, Recovery, Resilience, Fundamentally Refugee Communities. However, um, I realised that actually the story of this book about resilience would fundamentally make the women that I had interviewed and come to know much more vulnerable during COVID because um, the hyper-visibility that Somali community has paradoxically means that they are subject to more prejudice, they become more invisible, because what's pinned on them uh, is um, a whole a range of um, negative um, attributes. Um, so very briefly, this correlates um, to health inequality, or how does that um, correlate to, to what we've uh, seen today? So there is a, um, a um, unwillingness often, because as Dr. Farah Beats um, has said, my co-researcher um, on the article that we've published on high um, mortality rates uh, in East End of London, is that there is a conditioning not to talk about um, your problems, not to bring up your GP. Many don't have a stable or good relationship with their GP practice. Um, many also were in frontline occupations. So as, as we heard there, that the, the shocking way in which, and this has been one striking thing for me that's come out of this, this watching this, is the, what, what, what would, would hope from all this, this empathy about high death rates that had huge amounts of publicity in March, April, May of 2020 would lead to more understanding, more sympathy, uh, more empathy. Actually, that has um, not been the case at all because of this historic um, history of prejudice that I um, have um, spoken about. So I've got a lot more to say, but um, I think I'll stop there. Okay. Well, I mean, obviously, feel free to ask each other questions, but what interests me in particular here is that you already had a kind of self-help group basically recognizing that maybe the government or the council weren't really listening. So you'd already established some sort of, well, obviously your practice, but also some kind of network. And all of a sudden, the lockdown happened, and then I guess that really put extra pressure on people. But what I remember from the project was the fact that we started recognizing that existing organizations were absolutely crucial. It was like necessary to get in touch with certain community leaders who then were able to speak to those organizations. So maybe you could say a bit more about that, Nikita, or, or, or so on. I think the problem is when we're talking about, it, like, you go back to social justice, we politicize social justice. People think social justice means if I'm talking to somebody colored or black, I tick a box. <laughs> and that is the problem. That is my problem. And that's where I have a problem. And I think when you talk and exist system, is the system is not surface always. An education system is not surface to anybody. And simple thing is, how if you not if I'm not able to relate to you, how you can recognize what I'm talking about? And I think what we're talking about is children. I tell you, it's a lot. Oh, I don't know. I'm allowed to share my vision. I know it's a she's a strong woman. She was homeless. One of the lady, she wait, she leave her child who actually who autistic and is so smart and I love her, and she doing the government job to inform 
what we should do. Right. And that is, <laughs> that is the job she gives to herself. And actually, she, the one connected to the radio say, can I have one hour to just educate the community? And when the systemic, when we talk about systemic racism or social justice, people are scared to talk about it because they think, oh, no, I'm not racist because I have a black friend or I have that. It's not about that. And I think it's in our education system, when we create a surface, we not include people probably understand. Because your need in COVID time, it would be different than me. Sure. Yeah. And in it would be different than mine. But if we all of us, we take the same box, but the surface is not going to help anybody anyway. But I don't know who they create the surface for. Because some people, they don't know what is mental health mean. Like, I remember when I was talking, I used to, be, and this call, they created this call where we have 1,000, 2,000 people in the call. I would come and just do mindfulness exercise with them, just, just to teach them how to regulate their anxiety and so on. And, and they say, I don't know what is wrong with me. Is this just the God punishing me, or is it something wrong with me? Because they don't know what is this going on with them. And that is where this problem is. These people, they're not saying, oh, I have trauma now. I've been tripped down again, panic attack. They think it, panic attack is heart attack. But because they don't know what Spanish attack is mean, and they never in their language and not exist at all. And now we're talking to call the GP. The GP say, I sorry, I cannot see you. And this is people have limited language. But the GP not able to do it. And then we have people who are generalizing problems saying, oh, I'm the leader community. I can talk to about all the community. We, sometimes we come for some, my sister would be different than me and my experience. And my brother, how he see my mom, I would see my mom different. But imagine you generalizing people, same color, same ethnic, different race, in one box, and right. taking it. And that is what was a lot coming out, and you can edit more what they were saying. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think one thing about the kind of ethnic minority engagement strategy in COVID that, that played out right through the initial waves around excess death and then around vaccine uptake was in itself designed in a stigmatizing way because it, um, for example, uh, it, it uh, framed the problem of vaccine hesitancy as a problem of communications. So, you know, if we just translate the vaccine leaflet into Bengali and we stick them around Tower Hamlets, then that's enough, you know? Or if we just uh, translate, if I, an example is um, I spoke to somebody in Leicester from the Gujarati community who, um, who uh, said to me, why would you translate a leaflet into Gujarati to a community who speak Gujarati but don't know how to write, you know? So, so you have these kind of, uh, uh, you, have, you only scratch the surface with framing the problem as a problem of communications. I think also the, um, and maybe Joanna, you, you have some insight on this historically, but I think one thing that we picked up on a lot was that the model of community engagement kind of followed a colonial model, as Suad said. You identify the community leader, you kind of engage the community through that leader, um, and that was a model that was replicated in the way in which the government um, engaged communities around the Ebola epidemic in um, West Africa. So uh, what we were trying to do uh, as anthropologists was say, 
as Swan said, there's a range of different experiences in this community. There's inequalities that exist within communities that need to be traced and understood in order to understand why people are getting exposed to COVID, why people are hesitant to take up to take up a vaccine, etc. Um, and I think our kind of more relational perspective allowed us to kind of pick up on that um, breadth of experience without making it a kind of tick box kind of uh, form of generalization. Well, I'd just to say that um, all the response to, to COVID was coming in this, a situation of tra very traumatic high death rates, as has been said. Um, Rhoda Ibrahim, for example, community leader uh, in Brent, was completely overwhelmed, completely overwhelmed in those first couple of weeks. And she was having to help in situations where whole families had been wiped out. Mm. And people knew, so many people you could count, you know, on more than one hand, within those first couple of months, how many individuals um, they knew people who um, had died. And so what's important to remember, however, is that there's a long-term history of issues of health inequality to do with socioeconomic status that conditioned that, that response that fear of dealing with the NHS, but fundamentally a lack of Somali GPs and nurses. There is one Somali GP, a woman, Dr. Farnabid, in the East End. There is one. And that's one of the largest Somali uh, communities in one of the poorest areas. That abuts one of the richest um, areas uh, in London. Also. Yeah. And just add one thing I added is um, the language barrier people underestimate. They think, how can I speak? I still I speak broken English. But the, one of the things that people not understand, language is not about the word you're saying, it's the emotion encoding expression. So many languages is expressing language. Actually, depression, word depression don't exist in so many languages. Tell me, you go into the assessment and say, oh, you're depressed, you're anxious. What the hell? I can't tell you about that. This is not existing in my dictionary. And there's the other thing is when you talk into aura nation and you want to translate that language, it's totally different. You have different talk. I've been doing interpreting for nearly 15 years between UK, US. Like I've been on, I've been behind doors, and sometimes I laugh like when. This, people who think they are professional they come to their room and say, I'm doctor so and so and so and you have this and this and this and let's work together. It's just, just sometimes I laugh and I just let him talk and I sometimes say, okay. <laughs> you know, it's not when you say it don't make sense to them. But I need to get into it and say stop, it's not about but that we don't understand actually how we translate language itself. What is mean is this if, like for me, Allah, I learned quite time is one in English I need to say sorry. In Somali language, we don't say sorry or please. Well, I look rude all the time to people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing rude. This is, I'm rude to people because I don't use that. In my code language, we don't that. It's just the way I see you, the way I talk to you. You know, I respect you. And now, Allah, Somali people, they, they are rude because. When they go to GB, say, by the way, I want this and this and this. And they say, can you say please? <laughs> that 
face is so barrier. It's a so simple thing. But you really, I blocked, you blocked me already. You have, you judge me and I judge you. We don't have no more communication. Yeah. And that is other layer barrier. We never acknowledge you. We, we don't know about it. And no one actually explore it and say, actually, this is one of the, I don't, it's not mean I don't understand you. Well, what does that mean? So I want to sort of ask James here because um, so you came in as a sort of outsider to make this film. I mean, did you strike did it strike you that this whole thing of translation was something important? Because obviously you were making the film in English, I guess, most of the time. But I also wondered, okay, you're the only man on this panel. I didn't notice any men in this film. I just wondered where are the Somali men in this whole story? Is it that these Somali women have been forced to sort of become this very self-reliant group because the men are doing something else? I just wondered if you had any insights into that. Yeah, um, it is kind of noticeable when you're there, obviously, so I'd be able to speak more to this than I can, but uh, it's very visible that it seems that the women are the, the linchpins of the community, and they kind of, they, they're the ones with the networks, um, and then when we were down there filming, a lot of the women were active and working, there were men there, like, but they seemed to be doing more socialising <laughs> in the cafes and stuff. <laughs> that was just my impression. Yes, <laughs> um, and then, in terms of translation, on a wider, um, uh, in terms of a broader kind of concept of translation, what really struck me uh, being there for a couple of days was, you know, coming from my London life, lockdown rules felt very kind of like black and white, and you know, you're either abiding by them or you're not, and there was kind of like a social stigma to to not. And then when you go to a place like the Somali community in Birmingham, you realise actually. If you don't follow the rules, it's not because you're a bad person. You're having to rely on networks. You're having to kind of share food, and you know if someone's really struggling, you have to come into contact with other people. And then by coming into contact with other people, you're being stigmatised. And there's a kind of like a vicious circle that's going on there. Yeah, um, that's right. So that that really struck me. Um, in terms of the language. Self, like people were so expressive, and I hope this comes through the film as well. Like, even when people were struggling to find the right words, I feel like the emotion was so strong. It was so soon after, it was like between lockdowns, I think, um, that the kind of communicative force was kind of there, apparent, and just kind of walking around and finding people. Yeah, great. Joan, and if you have anything else to add, please do, or do you want to ask them anything about it? Well, I'd love to ask um, sort of what do you think about the racially informed aspect to this, that the legacy of racism with regard to trauma, um, some doctors are um, arguing that the legacy of racism has uh, a health impact, and I wondered what you um, felt about that aspect. Oh, that's a big question. There is still animal. There's this trauma, what are we... What? Who give the name of trauma? Where I'm coming from? If you talk about trauma in West Culture Review, it's totally different. When you're talking about trauma in Black Culture, it's totally different interpretation. But in psychology, the trauma we're talking about is individualized. One person, how your neural system, how your core belief, how all, all this related to you. But when it's group and collect culture, trauma, we, people don't know I am, can I feel, can I be myself? It's correct, it's, that is how trauma is. And the other thing is, we're talking about 
generation who don't know mental health. Like to now, we have limitations in Somali language in our mental health diagnosis. Literally, it's not exist yet that much of this. So, so far, I'm aware of it. The trauma in psychology is totally different when you go back and different. But for me, for somebody who studied psychology and been training quite a lot, sometimes I used to not know, actually, did I have trauma? And actually, the first time I acknowledge I had trauma is when I could not close my eyes to some of the exercise I was doing in arts therapy. And I said, I'm not able to close my eyes. And I was seeing something wrong with me. And then I got flashback. Something happened to me in the past. And then I said, oh, shit. That day I survived. I've been killed. And I was only six years old. And I called my aunt. I said, that did accident something happen like that? She said, yeah, that day you were swimming, going to die. But I didn't know. I didn't know why I'm not able to close my eyes at some point, and so why I could not do that exercise. But that mean, for me, knowing and studying psychology, I didn't know what I was feeling, what it called. But imagine people who never know what that means. And so, but the language coding emotion is totally different. Then we come in the element of racism. This is, this is generation trauma and racism in you. It's a stress. You feel like you're one of the things broke, you would not know, you think he stopped some generation, no racism, no more. I remember a couple of years ago, my daughter, she was 15, and she said, I want to become a lawyer. And then she said, no, 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 I cannot be a lawyer. I said, why? She said, I'm black. I said, what does that mean? She said to me, mom, I'm black. I will not get opportunity to train. And that shocked me. Like, she, she grew up, she born in here in Europe, she should have more opportunity. I, I never tell her you are different. But that is that is a generation who born here and they think they can access anything. But they they don't have that. They see around and they're not able to access it. But that is, is when we talk about racism, it's not about the color. It's about the quality. It's about the just that it's it's not me, me, me telling you you are racist to me. It's more about I'm able to express how I feel, whatever I feel, and whatever I can, without you putting the word in my mouth and what you shouldn't, what I shouldn't. Now we train in therapy and trauma, all this. I see all my training. I can't relate to. I never attend one psychology lecture where I say, "Oh my God, I can't relate to this." And I'm studying psychology all my life. But that is the problem: is related to that connection, who you can't relate to, and people. If you train for something, and, and you the think is, oh, I can work multi-culture uh, or multi-culture, but you've been trained, the old background is the same, the old education system is the same, but we need to do the same thing again and again. But we're not getting new brain <laughs> to change the how we think. Yeah. It's the same thing, we, we drink the same water again. And I think we're just seeing colors. And I don't want you to see color. I don't mind to you black or white or whatever you are, or Asian, anything. It's not matter that. It's just what here, what quality we are. And we're customer to our service and system too. The system put all of us together, and we've not seen no more anything. Okay, great. So do you want to add anything, Stasi? Can I go to the audience? Yeah, exactly. Uh, we, we can come back at the end, because we are talking about like healing from COVID, so we need to go into that a little bit. So yeah, are there any questions? Hi, 
I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. Yeah, and I'm really touched about uh, this whole movie because I live in Birmingham too. And after the COVID, I did find there's an increasing number of homeless on the street. And every corner of the traffic lot, you will see a homeless. And also, there's an increased number of crime rates in um, Birmingham as well. And I got um, friends whose size has been invaded, and like they were actually um, growing drugs in the sites. And I moved from London years ago to Birmingham, and I did realize there's epistemic bubble from people's recognition, um, both cognitively and also interactionally uh, between those social groups. Me, as a minority group, I learned the word resist. Sorry, I learned the word racist since I came to UK. I never ever experienced racist in my own country. This is what I learned in UK. But it's a good thing. I experience probably the social class I will not experience in my own country. But I've been lucky because I've been, I'm an IC alumni. I got an economic ability to success in this world. But I mean, to me, this problem is not just after COVID. It's always there. We are saying that we don't have racial um, segregation. Actually, we are. We, minority group, we live in the same, similar location. We have a worse education system, which even, like, I moved from London to Birmingham. The ability to access free milk powder is different. I asked a GP here, Sorry. it's fine. I'm going to have to ask you to wrap up because you've got quite a few other questions. I'm really sorry. sorry. But I was wondering how you think we as um, people share similar feelings can break this chain and how we can make this world together, not only narratively. Okay, thanks. I'm going to take a few questions and then I'm going to get you guys to pick what you want. Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, th thank you very much. I once worked in um, an international donors law enforcement support program in Puntland uh, in northern Somalia. Um, I was utterly ashamed at the contempt and selfishness and mismanagement of that program by the international donors, not, I must stress, by anybody from Somalia. Absolute disgrace. Too often that is the case. My question is, how are, are you finding that as the pandemic recedes, hopefully, hopefully, um, there's difficulty in keeping up momentum about your message? Is it the old story that once the, the really acute phase of the crisis is over, uh, people lose interest? How are you? How are you keeping the momentum up and are people still listening to you? Thank you. Thanks. And I think there was another question. Um, yeah, that gentleman over there. I think there's the microphone's coming to you now. Um, yeah, I'm from Hackney and uh, 
I'm a volunteer with the Health Watch Hackney, and we face uh, a lot of uh, similar anxieties and fears uh, around the access to healthcare and uh, social care as well. Um, do you have organisations in Birmingham which enable uh, the Somali community in Birmingham to liaise with uh, non-state organisations in bridging the gap between the communities and the National Health Service? Because in my own experience, um, uh, we usually have uh, meetings uh, with the CCGs and that helps as well because what I notice is that a lot of elderly people and people with long-term conditions uh, also, it takes a long time to arrange an organiser. Uh, have you had any of those experiences in trying to um, bring the community together? Great, thank you. I think those, we'll take those three to start off with. Um, so, over to you guys, yeah. if you want to answer you want, do you want to answer I'll start questions? off, and I think actually we can weave the three questions together in a really interesting way. Um, so, as part of the general COVID in care kind of project, we basically tried to track these relationships, as you say, um, between CCGs, NHS, grassroots organizations, and local government. And we've actually done, colleagues of mine have done a study in Hackney, and I think they may have spoke to colleagues at Healthwatch, and, and also um, Hackney's a really interesting case study because there are really deep historical links between those organizations which aren't present in other parallel boroughs like um, uh, Ealing, where we did work as well, or Tower Hamlets. Um, so I suppose our our um, findings, um, and here I bring in um, this gentleman's question as well, uh, our findings were that there was a kind of really interesting opening where all of these organizations came together in um, innovative and new ways around a common goal, exactly like this. Um, often because of suspended procurement mechanisms, because of um, uh, increased uh, government funding that was unrestricted, um, and also with a need, like a, a kind of burning need to engage grassroots organizations who had previously been excluded from conversations um, where they were kind of led by the usual, what people call the usual suspects um, at that local authority level. Um, now, whether those kind of, kind of consortia models are sustainable or not is an interesting question that we've tried to track. Um, I don't know, Joanna, you might have some insights on that from your work in East London, but certainly I think that the environment of austerity starvation means that those relationships are very fragile. And I know Deborah's done previous work on this before the pandemic, which really helped us to understand what a big thing it was for those organizations to be able to come together in the first place. Um, I suppose uh, what I'm finding really interesting now in trying to answer that question is, uh, is to start to actually ask people who are at the, at, at, in the greatest need whether those services are linking up for them. So um, Suad and I went back to Dream Chase's Youth Centre about three weeks ago and we screened the film back to a group of 17 women from the Somali community, including Pfizer, including Aisha, including Fatima, uh, uh, um, yeah. And um, it was amazing because 
they had a ve they had very very specific um, demands and concerns, and they were really angry because you know certain things that they were promised in that moment of the pandemic were not being delivered on. For example, housing um, and other things. So yeah, I, I don't know. I hand it over to you guys, but I do definitely think that that window has closed in in many ways. Right. And and I think this is because of what we did. We are here today, but we are able to hear this. I think it's not only. COVID and over, I think this story continue, and we we go back again to them, we scream them from, and we hear the feedback again, and we take, we listen to them. Yes, there is, I attend so much meeting, it's beyond me, but I, I'm not a fan of meetings, but every time, come to this meeting, we need to do this. I did with how to, how to watch research, I give a report recommendation about how they improve surface. And I've been attending meetings. For now, the other problem they're facing is black women. They're not able to get more breast cancer because they're not attending the smear test. And so this is another big than issue for yeah. And I, I see different community because I'm not only speak Somali. I speak for language. But I, I grow up in But I see a lot other different community. The isolation, I think, community come together and people are, and the problem is, we don't have that much data too. When you're talking to the government and people who make you know, they want to data, they want to receive. Yeah. When you are emotional and you're not reading, writing, and know people and stuff, you don't have receive. Well, no one's going to hear you. Sure. And I think that is the other problem with ethnic minorities you're talking about. Yeah, but that's why the film is so great, because it's sort of, it's something you can play back to people and they can respond, mm -hmm. and it almost yeah. carries the, the momentum forward, I think, so well mm -hmm. done, you guys. Jonah, do you want to say anything? Because I'm going to ask the final question in, in a few minutes. But yeah, anything on well, those just comments? just very quickly, in, in the case of our more modest um, research, um, you know, Dr. Farabid and I, we found it's like two steps forward, one step back. There, the fundamental problem is lack of data, and it's really important that Somalis um, who are either experts or experts in experience are enabled, supported to generate that community-sensitive data. Um, Farah and myself, from our research, we did a one-day uh, training workshop on cultural sensitivity about the Somali community, two care providers um, for the um, North East London um, Authority, including Tower Hamlets. And what came out of that was how important it is, because of the colonial legacy and the legacy of indirect rule, is to get, um, because we were in a state of majority of minority communities, um, is to get all minority communities um, to also be understanding the various histories that are unique, the various cultures that are unique, but also their shared experience of um, racism and um, in inequality. So there are positives, but yes, it, it is a big, big um, hurdle that we all have to, I think, collectively try and get over. Right. Anything you want to add at all? Um, just from a, from a filmmaking perspective, in terms of breaking this narrative, I feel that too often, and I'm thinking especially of news, um, a story will happen, people will descend, film, uh, a crew will descend on a, a particular place, uh, they'll interview somebody, and they'll inadvertently kind of recycle uh, narratives of victimhood, of othering, where from the outside we're coming in. And I think there's a real important job to be done in finding new ways of reporting and new visual languages to kind of 
help express people's points of view to embody their experiences. Um, and I think hopefully that might help break this chain. That's great, yeah. So we've got literally about two more minutes left, and I just thought I would ask one final question. It might just be a statement, I suppose. Because uh, what struck me about the film was, first of all, you got the austerity, then you got the lockdown. So everything becomes very, very constrained. And as you say, it kind of expressed itself in mental health, although it's obviously just deprivation in a whole lot of different ways. And this is something I know you've worked on a lot, Nikita. But I wondered, how likely is it that these forms of health which is effectively some sort of self-help that, that has been generated, will sort of outlast the lockdown, outlast the pandemic. And that's kind of what these other questions have been as well. So it's all about, you know, are we going to heal? Are we going to carry on healing? Or is it just that when the pandemic was on, everyone came together and once it moves on, is it sort of like going to be over? I'm hoping not, but I mean, I don't know if you have any more thoughts about that at all. Um, maybe a positive story from me. Um, when we went to... Uh, uh, screen the film a couple of weeks ago, uh, Pfizer has secured a grant to basically set up her own studio for the community radio with all her own equipment um, on the, on the like, adjacent to the Dream Chasers Youth Centre. And she interviewed us and, um, you know, to get the film out to the community. So, you know, I mean, that's, a, that's something that she started and really kind of um, rocked in during the pandemic and, and kind of responded to a particular need that she's now found a way of um, continuing to sustain. Um, whether, uh, uh, but, you know, that's based on government grants and, and being able to access funding and things like that. So, I mean, that's the, I suppose, if we go back to an austerity state, then, then again, these things fold. Yeah, and, and the other thing is, uh, Ashley, too, she, she tried to get funding, but she had 500 kids. <laughs> she 500 kids in football and different team and she's saving the children from the stress and for crying but it is there is beautiful for this pain too is is people do the best they can and, and there are women who save in their community and I love them and actually I'm quite a part to be part of that and I think it's for me is um, yes I'm kind of like qualified for do things. Well, I think what I love about it is I like my name because they call me hey, sideways, I wanted this and this. But I like, I love that sense we are without anything, they are just women who connect and give the all to help each other without any structure, system, all that. And that is beauty, I think. There is hope for humankind, I think. Great. Well, that's a wonderful note on which to end. So thank you very much to our panelists. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.